Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When I look around and I see other people who don't have dads in their lives, and I look at my dad and I think, I have a dad who wants to be a part of my life, but he literally can't. And he tries so hard, there's a barrier that he can't get past. When you have a dad that's as caring and funny as my dad is, it's hard not to suffer through the pain just to be able to talk to him again, even if it hurts. Do you ever want to be arrested for a murder of William Lowe, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Nine months ago, I received a strange package in the mail. It was addressed to me, but the return address wasn't a person. It was a business address with no name. I opened the package to find a small, clear wine bottle. It was corked, and inside there was a bit of sand, some tiny seashells, a little plastic palm tree, and a rolled-up stack of lined paper. It was an actual message in a bottle. Now, this may sound silly, but I didn't know what to do with the message, or the bottle. There was no note, no card, and like I said, no return address. I didn't know if I was supposed to uncork the bottle and read the letter, or put it on my desk as a decoration. Listeners send me stuff like this all the time, so I opted to put the bottle on a shelf in my office. Surely, very soon, someone would reach out and let me know why they sent me this trinket. But no one ever did. Eventually, Mike asked me what the deal was with the bottle. I told him I didn't know and didn't know what I was supposed to do with it. And he said, and I quote, The hell do you think you're supposed to do with it? Open it. Trusting Mike's wisdom and judgment, I uncorked the bottle and pulled out a five-page handwritten letter from Jamie Snow. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We get hundreds of requests every month from people asking us to look into potential wrongful conviction cases. Some through our online submission form, some through email or Facebook messages, and a lot of letters sent directly to our P.O. box from inmates asking for help. It can be overwhelming at times. 
So many people that genuinely need help and not enough time or resources to help all of them. When I read Jamie's message in a bottle, his name immediately sounded familiar to me. A quick look through my files revealed several other letters that he had written to me. At some point, Jamie had figured out that if he wanted our help, he needed to get my attention. And it worked. This is what he wrote to me with his message in a bottle. Dear Mr. Ruff, I wish I knew the perfect way to begin a letter like this. Believe it or not, I've probably written a few thousand of these letters, each a little different in one way or another, but all with the same goal, a plea for help. Life-saving help is what I truly seek. I haven't been completely unlucky in this endeavor to find help. Tara Thompson and John Lovey from the Exoneration Project in Chicago, as well as John Hanlon from the Illinois Innocence Project in Springfield, have taken my case up in the courts. I'd welcome you to look them up and see who they really are. They are probably three of the best wrongful conviction attorneys in the entire state, and they believe in me. My name is Jamie Snow, and I'm almost 20 years into a life sentence for a crime I didn't commit. I've found out over the years that that statement alone isn't in itself enough to grab someone's attention, and it's definitely not enough to motivate someone to get involved and help. I urge you with every beat of my heart and every ounce of my soul to take the time to really learn about my case. Don't just take my word for it. Do as my lawyers did and review the evidence, and then decide if you're willing to get involved and help us. As great and dedicated as my attorneys are, there is only so much that they can do. Theirs is an audience of judges and prosecutors who represent a system that hates to admit when they have made a mistake. I believe yours is an audience of people who truly are seeking the truth. We need to shed as much light on this case as we can. In the last 20 years, I've seen over and over cases solved after being profiled on one program or another. Men and women who would have never won their freedom without that program taking a chance on them. So I guess, Mr. Ruff, that's what I'm asking of you today. Take a chance on me in this case. If in the end, you don't want to do it for me and my family, then do it for the victim in this case, William Little. He was an 18-year-old kid who was murdered for less than $100. And as long as I sit in this prison cell convicted for his murder, he will never receive the justice his life deserved. Mr. Ruff, I could spend 150 pages telling you about my case, and even then, I feel like I'd only scratch the surface. It's truly an unbelievable case that even as I write this letter to you is still twisting and turning. So instead of overwhelming you with the case facts today, I beg of you to check out our website, freejamiesnow.com, and contact my case coordinator, Tammy Alexander, or reach out to my attorneys. In closing, Mr. Ruff, I will tell you that I acknowledge that I understand a program such as yours most likely receives thousands of requests for help, so I'm just one of many in the sea of wrongful convictions. I could never comment on the truthfulness or veracity of someone else's claims or pleas. I can only tell you that at this very moment, you hold in your hands a letter from one who is truly innocent. Please take a chance and maybe help to save what life I have left. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Jamie Snow. Jamie challenged me to contact his lawyers to learn more about his case, and I accepted the challenge. At the beginning of my conversation with Tara Thompson, I gave her the same disclaimer that I give everyone when I consider a case. 
I let him know I'm not an advocate. My only mission is to find the truth. How much do you believe in your client? Because what what I will tell Jamie when I speak to him, the first time we speak is two things. Number one, do not lie to me. I cannot do my job. And I'm sure you tell him the same thing as an attorney. I can't do my job if you're lying to me. And secondly, we're digging to find the truth. You know, we're not we're not starting out as Jamie Snow advocates. We're advocates for the truth and for justice. So if we dig deeper and we find out that he actually did it, that's going to come out and it's going to ruin any chances of, of appeals. I don't ever want to give somebody the false promise of, hey, we're going to come in and advocate for you because our first step is to thoroughly investigate this case. How much do you believe in your client's innocence before we move forward with this? Well, that's not an issue for me. I mean, I, I have represented Jamie for over a decade and I'm not, I have zero concerns about his innocence. Once we moved on from the unpleasantries and the usual disclaimers, I asked Tara to tell me a little bit about herself, Jamie's case, and her involvement in it. My name is Tara Thompson, and I'm a staff attorney with the Exoneration Project. Our project is an Illinois uh, not-for-profit corporation, and we provide legal services to people who've been convicted of crimes they didn't commit. We are a clinic that is affiliated with the University of Chicago Law School, and so we work with students on a number of these kinds of cases. As a project, we don't have a particular type of case that we focus on. There are some innocence projects in the United States that only do DNA cases or only do certain kinds of cases, and that's not our mandate. Essentially, the only criteria we have for representing somebody is that we believe somebody's innocent and we believe that there's something that we can do about it. And if we believe those things, then it's a case that we're willing to take. And we take, you know, we take some complicated cases. We take cases that sometimes take a long time to resolve. But our perspective is, if we believe in you, you know, we're going to be there to be your counsel as long as it takes until hopefully you walk free. We represent Jamie along with the Illinois Innocence Project, which is another Innocence Project organization in Illinois. They came on board uh, Jamie's case a few years ago, and together we represent him. And I do believe Jamie's innocent. I've represented Jamie for for a long time. I've, I've really been working on his case since 2008, 2009. And that now represents a decade of my time as a lawyer, as a post-conviction lawyer. And from all the investigation we've done, all the people that I've talked to about this case, Everybody that we have reached out to to try to learn more about what happened, there there really is no question in my mind that Jamie's innocent. My conversations with Tara were enough to convince me that there must be something to Jamie's claim about being wrongfully convicted. So I started to dig through his case file, and then I got him on the phone. My initial thoughts were that I like Jamie. He has a certain way about him. And actually, he kind of reminds me of Ed Eight's. Despite his circumstances, every time I speak with Jamie, I always get at least a chuckle or two out of him. He somehow finds it within himself to still be lighthearted, even though he's in a desperate situation. So this week I called him and asked him to introduce himself to all of you. And I'm not sure that he was quite ready for my impromptu request. That's what you want me to do right now? Yep, if you're ready. (laughs) Okay. My name is Jamie Snow. And I was wrongfully convicted for the murder of William Little in Bloomington, Illinois, on Easter Sunday, 1991. I'm the father of six kids. I've got six grandkids. And next month, I will have finished my 20th year in prison for this crime. 
I was raised in a fairly strict Christian house. My mom and my stepdad primarily raised me, and I really wish that I could I could blame you know a lot of my my earlier problems in life you know on on my parents you know but I, I can't you know I had a really good family unit going on there. What kind of trouble were you getting into as a teenager leading up into your mid twenties? You know, just petty, petty stuff, burglaries and joy riding in cars and just drinking and, and smoking pot and fights at school and just stuff like that, you know. And I, I think I may have told you before, you know, I, I took a, a class here at Northwestern University on restorative justice. And, and one of the things that they focused on was the brain science behind young offenders. And one of the things that I think may have triggered, I don't use it as an excuse because I don't, I don't think it's an excuse, but I, one of the things that, uh, I think may have triggered, you know, a lot of what was going on with me when I was a juvenile was my mom being diagnosed with cancer. She was diagnosed and she fought and, and she died when I was fairly young. So I don't know if I was just looking for attention. You know, I don't know what it was, but a lot of the stuff that I started getting into early on was, you know, started happening, you know, right around the time that she was diagnosed and fighting her her battle with cancer. When was the first time that you were arrested for something? I was probably, I don't know, maybe uh, 13, 12 or 13, maybe. I think it was for a burglary. I mean, that's, that's what I did, man. I... I was a burglar, I guess, if that's what you want to say. So when when you were burglarizing places, were, was there ever any violence involved? Were you, were you stealing stuff from thing, from people when they weren't around, or were you were these strong-arm robberies? You know, I wouldn't break into somebody's house when they were home. You know, I, I was always just burglarizing people's houses when they weren't home and and stealing just petty stuff, you know, it's I mean, I, I, I tell you, Bob, I, I look back on it now, and uh, I am so regretful and, you know, ashamed and sorry for that, the stuff that I did. I mean, it was just terrible. But it was never, you know, I never did anything other than getting into some fights and stuff, at, you know, at school growing up and stuff. You know, I never, I never had no, you know, there's no, never no violence. Jamie once told me that he was a juvenile delinquent until he was 25 years old. He's been up front with me since the very beginning of our conversations that he has made his own bed, so to speak, when it came to being on the police's radar. He spent the better part of 13 years, from age 12 through age 25, getting in all kinds of trouble. Burglarizing homes, hanging with the wrong crowd, running from police, and even hiding from them in an attic at one point. He seemed to have just a general disrespect for authority in general, and especially the police in his younger years. He regrets all that now, but his past is his past. It's too late to run away from it now. But over the years, Jamie seems to have really learned the art of self-reflection. In fact, he was so upset with himself after that conversation that he called me back. After we hung up, he thought about how he had described his burglaries as petty. You know, I, I got to thinking after we were talking the other day, you know, and, and, and something I want you and your, you know, any, your listeners or anybody else to know, you know, when I say that I was doing petty shit, you know, petty, 
petty crimes and petty burglaries or whatever, you know. No, I don't think the people that I was victimizing, man, would think it was petty. You know, it's probably pretty, pretty serious to them. You know what I'm saying? And I don't want, I don't want people to think that I, I'm, I, I'm trying to downplay the, the pain or the, the hurt that I cause people by doing that shit because it's, it, it's not. It, 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 what I, what I meant by when I said it was petty was that, you know, I did three and a half years for breaking into this guy's house and, I probably got a couple thousand dollars worth of merchandise out of there. You know, I did three and a half years for that. I left my kid's mom on the street. I left my kids on the street. My dad died while I was in there. So to me, you think about what I lost compared to what I gained, it was just, it was petty to me. Petty or not, in a small town like Bloomington, being on the BPD's short list of usual suspects, as it turns out, can land you in prison for the rest of your life for something that you claim you didn't do. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Last week, Jamie told us that he, quote, made it real easy for police to drag him into Bill Little's case. So this week, I asked his attorney Tara how she thinks that Jamie originally became a suspect. In part, you'd have to ask the police that, but from the investigation that we've done, I think the simplest answer is that Jamie was really a usual suspect type person in Bloomington. You know, he was somebody who grew up in in humble circumstances in Bloomington in a trailer park, and he was known to the police. I think Jamie, you know, was not was not perfect growing up. He had little difficulties with the authorities and the police knew him. And there are some police officers in Bloomington who knew him who didn't like him. They saw him as a problem in that community and they had looked into Jamie to see if he was involved in different things that had happened in Bloomington. What's important to know about Bloomington at that time in the early 90s was that it was a growing community. In Illinois, there were people who lived in that town for a long time, and then there were new people coming in as well. And maybe in connection with with that dynamic, just with it being a a growing city and there being a lot going on, in in that time period, 1991, when this happened, there were actually a spate of robberies and some actual killings associated with robberies or purported robberies in Bloomington around that time. There was a well-known tavern keeper who was killed, William Whalen, right around this time period. And there were a series of robberies or break-ins at some stores and some other gas stations. And so there was actually a task force that was even formed 
to try to look in, into all these cases, because obviously, if there's a series of these kinds of crimes going on, that represents a problem that, you know, law enforcement needed to do something about. The police, for whatever reason, you know, began to suspect that Jamie had potentially been involved in another gas station robbery that had happened in the community pretty close in time to this one. And that one didn't involve anybody being killed. But they thought he'd been involved in that case for whatever reason, and they had investigated that case some. And so when this case happened, I think Jamie was immediately on law enforcement's mind. And even from the records of the investigation that are publicly available about this investigation, police were looking at Jamie from the very beginning, and it doesn't seem like they ever really seriously considered the possibility that Jamie wasn't involved. It's like the classic tunnel vision where you start with an idea in your mind and you just don't change it. And so there was this early investigation that was done into Bill Little's murder where the police looked at Jamie and investigated whether he was involved. And at that time, they didn't conclude that the evidence was there that he was. And so they they dropped this investigation and nothing really happened in this investigation for some period of time after. Around the same time that they were doing this investigation, though, they were looking to Jamie for this other case. And they investigated him for that, ultimately... He was arrested and charged actually with obstruction related to that other robbery investigation, and he was convicted and sentenced to prison. And there were some people in the police department, I think, for whom Jamie was always in their minds. And so even though this case didn't get solved, even though there wasn't evidence that Jamie was involved in this, the investigation kind of went dormant, and then it was re-picked up by other members of the department who I think always had had Jamie in mind for this. And when they picked it back up later in the 90s, you know, they set out to make a case against Jamie. And they were successful at that point in getting witnesses who would tell their story. And that's how Jamie got convicted. The other robbery that Tara is referring to is the Freedom Oil robbery. I'll let Jamie explain to you how all of that played out. It gets pretty confusing, and it almost seems like Bloomington PD was using the Freedom Oil robbery case as leverage to get Jamie to take a polygraph test in the little case. So when you say you made it real easy for him, you ended up becoming a suspect in Bill Little's murder. And from what I can see from the reports, it seems like it was primarily because that you were already a suspect in another armed robbery. So what can you tell me about that? Were you, were you involved in that armed robbery at all? Did you know who did it? Were you part of it? You know, I, I knew I knew about after the fact. I knew exactly what had happened, and I mean, did I do the armed robbery? No. Uh, the guy that did the armed robbery pled guilty to it. You know, there was a point in time that he could have threw me under the bus. I mean, they were trying to cut him a deal uh, early on and get him to throw me under the bus, and he didn't. I mean, he he took his weight. You know, and there was a point. Early in the investigation, if you go through the police reports, there were some of the task force cops that were saying, you know, they thought he was good for the murder of Bill Little. But then they found out that uh, he was in jail uh, the night that the, the homicide happened, and and so they pivoted on him. And, and I think, like I've told you before, I think there's a lot of the law enforcement detectives down there from around that time that, you know, they did not think that I'd committed the homicide. Did you end up getting charged in one way or another with that other armed robbery? 
Yeah, I, I got charged with it. Me and uh, I got charged as a as being accountable as an accessory or, or, or being accountable. And actually, I'm I'm sitting here right now writing you a letter about that that whole incident. But yeah, I, I got charged uh, under the accountability statute in the state of Illinois, saying that you know I either aided and abetted or attempted to aid and abet before, during, or after the robbery. That's how they charged me with it. So how uh, how did they charge you with aiding and abetting? Did you did you know about it and not tell anyone, or or what happened? You know, I I, I believe that that's what their what do you want to call it their their initial theory of it was they you know they thought I was involved and they and they really just like I said I mean they they were trying to basically get him to put it off on me and I mean thank God you know he had uh you know Mike Neely had a uh, he I, I don't know what the right word is but I mean he had I guess I'm going to say integrity I guess to to not throw me under the bus you know and he took his weight. He testified to the grand jury later on, and he said, look, you know, I did it. You know, I did it. I'm not going to try to put it off on somebody else. I did it. And I uh, always had great respect and appreciation for him. You know, the only other person I ever met that had that type of integrity was my co-defendant, Susan. You know, they tried to do the same thing to her. So what was your actual connection to, aside from whatever the charges were, the law was, what was your actual connection to that other armed robbery? Just that, you know, I was in the car. We were all in the car that night. It was my wife at the time's birthday. It was her birthday. And it was just that, uh, you know, I was in the car. They argued that I got some of the money, which... You know, Mike testified to the grand jury later on that he didn't give me any of the money. But at the time, their theory was that, you know, he gave me some of the money. But, you know, like I said, he he testified later on to the grand jury that, no, he did not give me any of the money. So that's what it was. Did you end up pleading out on that case? No. They ended up dropping the charges. But I did uh, later on... They recharged me later on with obstruction of justice and recharged me with the with the armed robbery. But then that was in 94, I believe. And that's when I I took a polygraph test for the uh, the murder of of, uh, Bill. And uh, one of the things they wanted was, you know, they said, look, you know, if you if you pass the polygraph, we'll drop the armed robbery. And let you cop out to the obstruction of justice. And I, I, you know, I took the polygraph. I passed it, and they they ended up dropping it a second time. And uh, you know, I copped out to the to the obstruction of justice. And I did obstruct justice. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. I, I did obstruct justice, but you know, I didn't obstruct it in the way that you know they may think that I obstructed it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, how did you obstruct justice? Well, I, you know, I knew they were looking for Mike and they came to my house looking for him and I didn't tell them where he was at. I didn't aid them in, in, in trying to, uh, find him. And, uh, you know, I, I, I told him they were looking for him. You know, when I saw him after they came looking for him, I let him know, hey, you know, they're looking for you. So. And you ended up pleading out to that, that you did obstruct justice in that way. 
Yeah, I, I, I did. You know, I really believed at the time, you know, I was doing better than I had ever done in my entire life. You know, I'd, I'd finally gotten my, myself on track. I was working. I, I had, you know, I had a job. I was, we were doing great. And, uh, I really believed that the court was going to give me, uh, probation, you know, and I just wanted to get it over with. You know, I wanted to get it over with. I had, at that time, I had four kids. And I had a good job, and I just wanted to put this stuff behind me and move on with my life, you know. And, you know, I had finally, I finally got it, you know. I finally got it, Bob. I'd, I had finally, you know, figured out what, what my role was as a father and, and, and as a husband. And, and, you know, I was trying to do, do my best to, to satisfy that, you know. Jamie's role as a father always seems to be at the forefront of every conversation I have with him. And I wanted to know more about that. So I reached out to his daughter, Nicole, to ask her what life was like living in Bloomington as the daughter of a convicted murderer. It's pretty well known in town. Whether you know anybody that was related to the crime or anything like that, it's pretty well known. So people have always been pretty opinionated when it comes to my dad's case and they've never really been able to separate me from my dad or me and my siblings from my dad and whether they believe he did it or not. So if someone has a negative view of my dad's case, they tend to have a negative view of me and my family. I've had people say things to me since I was young. Uh, My first job when I was 18, I actually had one of my coworkers who was an older woman come up to me and just during the work day, looked me straight in the face and told me my dad was a murderer and that she was family with Bill and she didn't appreciate the way that we kept trying to say he was innocent. So, I mean, it's always been something that's kind of awkward and in your face, you know, when you're least expecting it. Even though Nicole has been told by people her whole life that her father was a murderer, she's never believed it. I 100% believe that my dad is innocent. When I was younger, I used to believe it because he was my dad. And then when I got older, I started to look more into the case to make sure that it was really how I feel personally. And I think once you look at the case, I mean, it's really hard not to believe that at least there was something wrong done there. Whether you believe if he's innocent or not, I mean, as I got older, the more I looked into it, the more frustrated I got because it started to make less and less sense. When I was younger, I tried to kind of make sense of it in my mind. And then as I got older and I was able to look into it, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. How could this have happened? It doesn't, this isn't how the law is supposed to work. Nicole wasn't born yet when Bill Little was murdered. She's 25 now, so she only got to know her dad outside of the prison walls for about five years before he was convicted. Most of her father-daughter relationship has occurred with them behind prison walls. And over those years, she's stayed in touch with Jamie via the phone, letters, and visits. But it's been a hard 20 years growing up without her father. My dad is someone who is very entertaining. He's very humorous. Even when I was younger and he was obviously in a way worse position, between the two of us, he always made me feel like my problems were valid and they, were, they weren't they were meaningless just because of the situation that he was in. And he always, one thing that he's always taught me is how to see, like, the humor and everything. So, 
you know, I've I've always really looked up to him and I've always really respected him for that fact that he's never made it hard for me to see the person that he is, even though he's in a situation that he's in. He was always very transparent with me and his personality and whenever I went and saw him it was always a good experience. It was never it was never like I mean it was sad when I walked away, but it was never sad in the moment that I got to see him because he always made sure that he was in high spirits and didn't let that bring me down. But it's a really hard thing to have a dad that wants to be so involved in your life, but he can't. So it's always been kind of hard for me to understand our relationship in certain ways. When I look around and I see other people who don't have dads in their lives, and I look at my dad and I think, I have a dad who wants to be a part of my life, but he literally can't. And he tries so hard, but there's a barrier that he can't get past. So it's always been kind of difficult to understand, but when you have a dad that's as caring and funny as my dad is, it's hard not to suffer through the pain just to be able to talk to him again, even if it hurts. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jamie's case is weak on evidence with a heavy dose of complicated. You heard him mention earlier that he took and passed a polygraph, but he actually took the polygraph for Bill's case when he had been arrested the second time for the Freedom Oil case. The timeline goes something like this. Jamie was arrested for the Freedom Oil robbery in April of 91, just a few weeks after Bill's murder. He was in jail for that crime until the fall when charges against him were dropped. At that point, he and his family, including his in-laws, got the hell out of Bloomington and moved to Florida. He was still living out of state in 1994 when he was recharged with the Freedom Oil robbery. He was extradited back to Illinois, but when he got there, it seemed like the real reason police wanted him back was to talk more about the Bill Little case. When he had left the state three years earlier, the rumors started to really fly around town. According to Jamie, he was told by Detective Crow that if he would take a polygraph on the little case and pass it, then they would rule him out as a suspect. So Jamie did exactly that. Take a polygraph. Twice, actually. Jamie took his first polygraph on July 28, 1994, but the results were inconclusive. 
The examiner stated that there were, quote, erratic and inconsistent responses to relevant questions. Then, on September 1st, Jamie submitted to a second polygraph. This time, the examiner was able to render an opinion on the results. Jamie answered no to all three of these questions. On March 31st, 1994, note that the examiner got the year wrong here, and that'll come into play later, did you rob the Clark Station at Empire and Linden in Bloomington? Did you shoot William Little? Did you conspire with anyone to rob the Clark Gas Station? Jamie's answers to those three questions? No, no, and no. The examiner wrote, quote, It is the opinion of this examiner, based on polygraph records, that this subject was truthful to the above questions. End quote. Jamie thought this was the end of his troubles in the Bill Little case. He pled guilty to obstruction of justice in the Freedom Oil robbery, served about a year and a half for that, and then when he got out, he headed back down to Florida. Three years later, he heard that the grand jury was meeting in Bloomington to indict him for Bill Little's murder. And then he jumped in his car and left Florida before the police could find him. But that's a story for another day. You've figured out by now that Jamie was ultimately arrested and convicted based on a lot of jailhouse snitch testimony. I spent about an hour with him on the phone this week, and we spent a fair amount of time chatting about everything from the polygraph to the snitches to just prison life in general. So when you were in there and you took the polygraph, they had recharged you with the earlier armed robbery, not Bill Little's murder. Right. But then while you're in the police station, they give you a polygraph. Did the polygraph involve questions for both cases, or was it, we'll give you a polygraph about Bill Little's case? They just wanted the polygraph about the William Little murder case. And I'll, and I'll tell you, early on in the investigation, from the beginning, they they had asked me to take a polygraph, you know. And I I told them no, you know. I said, I, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm not going to take a polygraph. I don't want to stand in your lineup. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I didn't have anything to do with it. So. I didn't want to have anything to do with it, you know. I look back on that now, and I think, damn, you know, I I should have immediately took the polygraph test. But that's that's what happened. I mean, I I wasn't in jail on, on when they recharged me with the armed robbery. I, I bonded out. I was on the streets, you know. I was working, and uh, the main detective at the time, Charlie Crow, came to. I had a traffic ticket. He came to the court. And met me outside the court when I had a traffic ticket. And we went downstairs and we sat at a picnic table. And I'm telling you, we sat at that picnic table for probably an hour talking. And uh, he just, he's like, look, you know, I really wish you would take a polygraph. I, I want to either rule you in or rule you out. You know, and I, and I, and I, I think I told him, I, I really don't care if you think I did it. I didn't do it. You know, but I, I will take the polygraph, you know, and, and I did. You know, and I don't know what you think or what anybody else thinks about polygraphs. I know that they're not, they're not 100% accurate, but I'm going to tell you something. I knew I was going to pass that polygraph. You know, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that I was going to pass it. Right. And the, the thing about it, the polygraphs is it's, it's a no win. You know, most lawyers that I work with now won't ever let their clients or, or recommend their clients take a polygraph because it's a no win if you pass it like you did. Then they say, well, they're, they're inadmissible and they're not reliable. But if you fail it, <laughs> if you, if you fail it, now it's, now it's important. Now you failed the polygraph. It's a big deal. It, it, you can't win with it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is, but like they say, I mean, it is, it is supposedly a, a good 
law enforcement tool, you know, and I'm telling you, you know, it's funny. I passed the polygraph, but, you know, some of those witnesses they used against me failed their polygraphs, but they used them anyways. So, I mean, you're, you're right. But I'll tell you something, you know, you, you could set a polygraph. If you could get a polygraph set up for me right now, I'd take it and I wouldn't care what you asked me. I'd pass it. It, it may not be admissible in a court of law, but, you know, the court of public opinion can definitely take notice of it, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, so when you ended up pleading out to the obstruction of justice, you didn't get probation, right? They sentenced you to, was it to jail or prison? Yeah, they sent me to prison for three years. I did a, a little under a year and a half. And that was around 94, 95? Yeah, total disappointment. I was, I was devastated by that. Now, when you were in prison, that period of time seems to be when your tr- real trouble started with the Bill Little case. Whether or not anything actually happened in prison, but most of the witnesses against you were jailhouse snitches that served time with you during that period of time, right? Well, they either, a lot of them either served time with me or they happened to be in the same institution that I was in. So, yeah, I mean, but look, you know, when I took that polygraph, and I wrote you a letter about this, you know, when I took that polygraph in 1994, you know, one of the questions that the polygrapher asked me uh, after it was over, he was like, you know, because I asked him, I was like, you know, I asked Charlie Crow, I was like, you know, now do you believe me? I didn't do it, you know, and Charlie Crow was like, well, why would people tell me that you told them you did it? And I was like, where are they at, in jail? And he said, yeah, you know, and I was like, well, there's your answer right there. So I knew in 90 four or five, whenever I went to the you know, went to prison on the obstruction of justice, I knew that these guys had been, you know, people had been making these statements against me. So you would have to believe that even though I already knew that people were making statements against me, I went to prison and continued to tell everybody that I did it. It's just, it's just crazy. It makes no sense. Yeah, well, I mean, anytime a jailhouse informant comes forward with these, conf- you know, and I've seen them in every case I've ever worked. Someone, you know, serving time said that so-and-so confessed to something. But it just seems, I mean, I've I've never been in prison. I've never had served time in prison. But it just seems to me that that would be a ridiculous thing for anyone to do. From my experiences with people that I know in prison, they always say the same thing. Everybody's innocent in here. Everybody says they're innocent. I've never talked to someone that said, yeah, there's people all over the the place confessing to crimes they committed, ever. Well, you know, listen, I'll tell you something. I don't don't necessarily agree with that, Bob. There are a lot of guys in here who admit their guilt. You know, there are a lot of guys that will tell you, you know, yeah, you know, I, I did what I'm in here for. Not everybody's innocent in here, and there are a lot of guys in here that will will absolutely admit, hey, you know, I did it. But to your argument, there are a lot of guys that claim that they're, they're that they are innocent when they're not. So, you know, have you ever had you you've been in for twenty years? Surely you've made friends and know some guy know a lot of guys in there. Have you ever had anyone confess to you a crime that they didn't get convicted for? No, I haven't. And I, as I sit here and talk to you right now, I mean, it's been 20 years. I'd have to really 
sit and rack my brain, but I'll, you know, I, I don't think that I've ever had anyone confess a, a murder to me that they did not get caught for. I don't think so. And and that's and that's I guess more to my point. It just seems like why, especially you know, guys that have been in know what happens in there. They know that prosecutors will reach out to inmates to try to make a deal. It seems like it almost seems like you had to be a real idiot to trust someone that you don't know very well to confess to something you didn't do, knowing that that's the pool that prosecutors in every state I've ever worked in will dip into to try to pull out witnesses. Well, I've seen it happen. I mean, I, I've seen guys get a reversal and a remand for a new trial, and the state attorneys have immediately come down here and start pulling out their cellmates. I've seen it. Right. Offering deals, I, I, whatever I, they can do. To yeah, I've, I've absolutely seen it, you know. And I mean, in my case, you would have to believe that I was confessing to people that I really didn't even know. I could see guys coming clean to maybe someone that, that they really, truly, you know, their brother, their sister, their their father, their mother, their wife, people who they really, really know. But I mean, these people that were, in my case, I mean, as you go through it, you're going to see there's people that I had only just now met. Yeah, he told me he, he committed this murder. I'll tell you, it was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to go through in my entire life is to sit in that courtroom and watch these people paraded in there to, to, to testify left. to something that I, I didn't do. do. Can you get another 30 minutes, Jamie, or you got to be done now? You know, I can. I, I, I think my neighbor has, has got the phone. I'll try, but I, I'm not sure. If, if not, I've got the phone uh, uh, Thursday morning at 11 o'clock. I can call you back then. Well, let's do that. I don't want you to upset your neighbor. Why don't you go ahead and call me back on Thursday morning? At 11 o'clock. I got you. All right. Thanks, Jamie. All right, Bob, have a good time. I mean, have a good day, and, uh, you know, I hope the move uh, comes to an end soon. (laughs) We're going to hear more from Jamie, including the recording from his police interview on the day that he was arrested next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. 
If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And you can even follow Mike at mbussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.